I'd love to have the last word. Don't you? The last word? There's one thing we all like, it's having the last word. The last word in an argument or discussion or a debate. Having the last word feels good because it makes us feel like we were right all along. Last words are very important. Not in the winning of an argument or discussion, just last words in general. The last words of great historical figures are studied by many people. Last words are sometimes valued as the most important words of their entire life. Some people speaking last words on their deathbed have affirmed their faith, asked for forgiveness, confessed the crime, told where the buried treasure is, recanted heretical beliefs, or even given a final blessing. Sorry, this is giving me fits. I can blame no one but me. Okay. Last words many times have great significance. And when we study the life of Jesus, his teachings, his stories, his events and miracles, and interaction with people, we discover who God is. God reveals to us who he is and how he works all through Jesus. It is God becoming human. Easier to touch, easier to see, easier to understand and accessible to love. God with skin on or God with human form. Jesus spoke a lot of words and did many things. In John, it says in, it says in John 21, if every one of Jesus' words were written down, I suppose that not even the whole world would contain or have room for the books that could be written. The most important time Jesus spent with his followers were his last 40 days on earth. Jesus also had some last words spoken to his followers. And Jesus' last words moved the disciples from following Jesus to taking the lead to help others follow Jesus. He gave them a mission, a mission. That mission is the beginning of the Christian movement, the birth of the church that we find recorded in the book of Acts. The last words of Jesus gave us the why of this movement's beginning. What Jesus told them to do. Today is Mission Sunday, a day we set aside every year to reaffirm our commitment to that mission, not just here, but around the world. In fact, we, we think most often about mission as out there somewhere, when actually it starts here in our community. And I want to look at the beginning of this mission given to the followers of Jesus in his last words, his last words. Today on a mission, I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew 28, if you would. Matthew 28, it'll also be on the PowerPoint in front of you on the projection. And read the last words of Jesus to his disciples. Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The followers of Jesus were on high ground on a mountain in Galilee. And it feels good to be on top of the world with a guy actually who just came back from the dead. Felt pretty good, I'm sure. Jesus had told his followers to meet him there. And when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him. Now, I don't know how many people in your life you've worshipped lately or even in your lifetime. The question is, why did they worship him? Because they believed he was God. He was God. Many had witnessed his death and his crucifixion. Now he was alive. For three years, they had lived with him. They had seen him raise the dead. They saw him heal the sick, calm storms in an instant, feed four or 5,000 people with a single sack lunch, all kinds of signs and wonders. He was killed, and now he was alive. It was pretty incredible. So no wonder they worshipped him. No matter what others believe, they worshipped Jesus because they knew he was God. But there's this one little phrase in there. says, but some doubted. What? How in the world could they doubt? They saw that he was dead. He's alive. says that some doubted. What's wrong with that picture? There's nothing wrong with this picture. Frederick Buhner writes, the structure of the Christian faith is bipolar. Disciples live their lives between worship and doubt. Between worship and doubt. Say bipolar? Am I, am I bipolar? Well, spiritually speaking, we're all bipolar because we all wrestle with doubt, with doubt. Christians believe and doubt. Seekers or inquirers wrestle with belief versus doubt. We all live our lives between the spirit of worship and the spirit of doubt. You're in good company. You're in good company today. Bruner says Christians are both believers and doubters. They're adoring and wondering. They're trusting and questioning. All disciples experience this bipolarity and it is not healthy to deny it. These guys were right there. They saw everything. They still doubted. Kind of crazy, isn't it? Well, who here has not experienced doubt? You lost someone you loved because they contracted cancer. You lost a child. Your, your spouse cheated on you or your marriage fell apart. You lost your job. Your house fell through. Still wrestling with depression. Sometimes we are sidelined by doubt. Well, if you've experienced doubt or in that category, you're in good company. We all experience doubt. These other 11 followers of Jesus had doubts too. God uses worshiping, doubting disciples like you and me to do his work. We win our war with doubt by obedience to God's commands, just as they did. These guys once asked Jesus to increase their faith, and Jesus said, if you have faith the size of just a mustard seed, it's a tiny, tiny seed, ordinary tiny faith, you can tell this mountain to move, and it will move. Tiny faith, it's pretty small. Expect great things with ordinary faith, he says. So what are Jesus' last words to these worshiping, doubting followers? What are his last words to them and to us at that point? Number one, he says, I, Jesus, am in charge of the universe. I, Jesus, am in charge of the universe. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's quite a statement. 
You don't think Jesus claimed to be God? He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The word authority in this usage claims deity. This is a claim for absolute executive power, not only in the heaven with God, but also on earth with people. He said, I'm the CEO of the universe. That's quite a, quite a statement. Now, what gives someone authority? Authority is given to us. Someone gives it to us in authority. Authority comes from outside of ourselves. Examples, if you're the president of a company, you're hired by a board of directors and given authority. That board of directors delegates that authority to you as a chairman of the company. The president of the United States, the Constitution prescribes the election, the process, people vote, the electoral college votes, the president is elected. Does our president have authority from himself? No. The voters have given authority to vote. And the president receives that authority, authority from outside of himself. A police officer, does a police officer have his own authority? No. The police officer is given authority by laws that govern a jurisdiction. Other officials outside of himself. The military has a chain of command that can only operate by granted authority. It's important that we understand what Jesus was claiming here. Jesus was given authority by God, his Father. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, it says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. Speaking of Jesus in Ephesians 1, 20 to 22, it says, That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's pretty comprehensive. That authority given to Jesus. Philippians 2, 9-11 says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. Jesus' authority was given to him outside of himself from God. And he says to his disciples, he says to us, I'm in charge, I am the CEO of the universe. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's where he starts. Then he says, you speaking to his disciples, speaking to us, he says, move out. You're on a mission. You're on a mission. Therefore, go and make disciples. So he says, I'm in charge. Here's the deal. Here's your mission. He didn't say, here's your mission should you decide to accept it. This was not an episode of Mission Impossible. This was his mission given to his followers. It's real life. He said, here's your mission. He said, do it. This is why I came. This is why you exist and this is the mission of his followers. He said, make disciples. Now, what does it mean to make disciples? We hear that phrase a lot. First of all, what is a disciple? What is a disciple? In, in first century, a disciple did not enroll in a particular school. They enrolled with a particular teacher. Particular teacher. It's similar to music instruction. My wife, Judy, studied piano at Seattle Pacific University. But she would describe it and say, 
I studied piano with Marcel Mack. Marcel Mack was the instructor, a West Coast renowned piano instructor that happened to be at Seattle University, Seattle Pacific. But she basically studied under Marcel Mack. See, we're not a, a followers of a set of principles or ideas. We're not followers of a set of beliefs or doctrines. We follow a person, and that person is called Jesus Christ. So first of all, a disciple is a follower. A disciple is a believer. One must believe in the teacher. One must believe their credentials are solid. They are who they say they are. They have credibility so that we will do what they tell us to do. So if they tell us to do something, we will follow. It's to place trust in a person called to lead us, to teach us, to train us. To believe in Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, means all that and much more. To place our trust in, to submit our heart, our mind, emotions, and will. In Hebrew thought, belief was not just intellectual assent to a set of truths or principles. Sometimes we reduce our Christian faith to a set of principles. It was much more than that. It was mind, yes, it was intellect, it was emotions or passions. It was also obedience. Belief included and had to include action. It was inseparable. To believe in Jesus is a total absorption in the person. The person. The trust, the faith, and the action. One cannot believe without taking action on that belief. So what is a disciple? First of all, a believer. Wholehearted belief. Secondly, a follower. A follower. One who follows after. One who imitates and does what they do. And those actions become part of who we are. becomes our character. Now, somebody listed and said there are four levels of learning. So we're talking about learning. And these four levels are, are listed as unconscious incompetence. We don't know what we don't know. Okay? Then there's conscious incompetence. I know what I don't know. That's moving from age 18 to 25. That's one of those. Then there's conscious competence. We know, but we have to think about it when we do it. And then there's unconscious competence. We know it so well, we don't have to think about it. Now, I went through that quick, so let me give an illustration. How many of you learned how to drive on a stick shift? Whoa, whoa, I, we must be in Wisconsin. How many of you drive a stick shift now? Two, both three, oh, three of you. Okay, that's good. Okay, now if you remember... If, if you drove an automatic and you didn't know anything about stick shift, basically, you were in unconscious incompetence. You drive an automatic, you didn't even know there's a stick shift. Okay? And some people don't know there's a stick shift, and they just think it's always automatic. That's unconscious incompetence. Now, conscious incompetence is you begin to drive the stick shift, and you grind the gears and you roll backwards on hills and you are incompetent. You're conscious of a stick shift, but you don't know how to operate it. You have to think about it really carefully and you can't really do it very well. Conscious competence means you can actually drive the stick shift, but you've got to think about it while you're driving it. You can't talk on the cell phone, drink coffee, or eat at the same time. You have to concentrate or you're going to grind them. You can't find it, you grind it, you know, that whole thing with stick shift. Now, when you reach unconscious competence, 
You're so comfortable that you can do all kinds of things while you're going through the, the motions of the gears. You don't have to think about it. It's automatic. It becomes unconscious competence. Some of you say, what in the world are you getting at? The beginning of discipleship, when we first come to Christ, it's unconscious incompetence. We don't know what we don't know. Okay? We just, a lot of things we just don't know. And that's okay. That's where we all start. We have to think about it. Then we move on into the next stage, and we have to, we have to think about, okay, I've got to read the Word. I've got to pray. I've got to meditate. Uh, I can't get angry. I've got to be patient. I, I, I go through the fruits of the Spirit every day because I've got to label them and name them so that I can competently begin to articulate what those are. That's, that's the next level. A true follower doesn't need to worry about all the mechanics. They take on the character so much that there's no mechanical wooden set of rules. We just become like Jesus. It becomes part of who we are. We don't have to get up and say, okay, I got to be like Jesus today. What do I have to do? Um, uh, uh, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Okay, I know Jesus would do this. Would Jesus wear jeans? I, you know, I don't know. Maybe he would. You know, you, we can get really hung up on all kinds of things instead of saying, when we become a disciple, a follower, we move from unconscious incompetence to unconscious competence. And some of you are smiling because you know the journey. It's been an incredible journey. And the more we become a disciple, follower of Jesus, the more we become like him and more it becomes part of our nature, not we have to think about it mechanically. We don't always have to ask, what would Jesus do? We just do what Jesus would do. Back in the 1970s, long hair was considered an expression of rebellion. Some of you remember that. A lot of you have less of it now, but that's, that's okay. The youth in the 70s expressed their independence by, not through piercings and tattoos and pants that fall down. They just grew their hair long. That's how we expressed our independence and rebellion. One such man had just turned 16, and he wanted to get his driver's license. And his dad said, I'll let you take the car and get your driver's license, but you have to get your hair cut first. He said, you've got to be kidding. He objected. And he said, you know what? He said, followers of Jesus should do what Jesus did, right? And Jesus and all his disciples had long hair. What's the big deal? And the dad said, did you also notice that Jesus walked everywhere he went? <laughs> anyway, disciples of Jesus. Thirdly, a disciple of Jesus is a learner. A learner. A learner will study the life, the works, and words of Jesus. And the goal is to learn all we can about Jesus with the goal to be like Jesus. Our mission is to help people believe in Jesus, follow Jesus, and Learn about Jesus. Th that is the what is a disciple. Then how do we make disciples? If this is our mission, and this is foundational to the church of Jesus Christ, is foundational to our mission out there. When you hear Matt speak about this life transformation, how this guy decided after being a Muslim, and he looked at all of that and gave his life to Jesus. Two young men, life transformed. How do we make disciples? First of all, we have to build relationships with pre-Christians, with people who don't know Jesus. 
Now, that's a challenge for some people who are, have been in the Christian community for years. You ask, do you know any or do you have friends that are not believers? And they go, no, I, I don't know any. Well, that's our mission, our mission. Build relationships with pre-Christians. How did God communicate that he loved people? He incarnated the message and sent a representative human called Jesus, also God. And through Jesus becoming one of us, we learned about God's love. How does God do that today? He incarnates Jesus through us. In the first century, Jesus did his work building relationships, communicating, loving people through his body, his physical body. He was here. Okay? He was on earth. And all of his work was limited by choice to his physical body. Well, then he went to heaven. Where's his body now? It's you. The body of Jesus Christ. It calls the church the body of Christ. We are the body through whom God expresses his love to make disciples. The church. God in you and me. We are his representative. And you know, people will believe nothing until we build a relationship with them. They have to believe in us before they'll believe in Jesus. It's relationships, trust. All of those things demonstrate God's love and care in a tangible way. People matter to God. Do you know anybody in your realm of influence or your life that does not know Jesus? Anybody? If so, go. Move out. How do we make disciples? Second, we tell them about our faith. We tell them about our faith. I have a great chiropractor back in Seattle. We have a good one here, too. I'll just talk about the one there. His name's Dr. Rohde. As a family, we started going to Dr. Rohde for treatment when our daughters were young. They had been in this minor traffic accident, and their necks were out, and they were, they were kind of messed up. And so they went. They had back pain and neck things. Now, I decided that if I ever had neck pain or back pain or anything, I would go to Dr. Rohde. And if I ever talked to someone, they had back pain or neck pain, I said, you need to go to Dr. Rohde. I would tell them about Dr. Rohde. Why? Because I had tremendous faith in his ability to solve chronic problems through his treatment. So I'd tell them about Dr. Rohde. Who do we tell people who have chronic problems in their life, whether it's alcohol or drugs or depression, addiction to pornography, problems in marriage, finances? I tell them about Dr. Jesus who fixed my brokenness and my pain. He healed my relationships. What do we do? We tell them about our faith. If I have great faith in Dr. Jesus, I want them to know what he's done for me. Tell them. You know, people have great curiosity. And when you can tell them how Jesus changed your life, it gives them hope. It gives them a, a tangible. They can't argue with that. And they shouldn't try to argue with it. But basically, it's a testimony. It's what God did for you. What did Jesus do for you? Tell them about your faith. Number three, help them establish a relationship with Jesus. 
The job of leadership is to equip you so that you have the tools necessary to share your faith. But mostly it's about your story, your personal faith story. Your personal faith story is incredibly powerful because you experienced it. Then there's follow-through, number four. Help people learn about God in the Bible. When people come to faith in Jesus, he called it being born again. New believers are born again, and they're likened to newborn babies. And babies need a lot of help. Babies need a lot of help. We never look at a newborn baby and say, look at him. He can't do anything. He just lays around, eats and sleeps and fills his diapers and does all that other stuff. No, we don't say that about babies. An abandoned baby may survive for a few hours, but soon will die without proper care. Babies require parenting, feeding, diapering, learning how to walk, talk, run, to become responsible members of society. That's parenting. And then training. Training, number, we can go on and on. We, how to read the Bible, how to pray, the spiritual disciplines, all of those things. Now let's look at, just a minute, I'm, I'm going to put this up. It's the principles of making disciples. Principles, of, discipleship is a process. And there's something called the angle scale. This helped me. Can you push it up? Let's pull it up. Is it on there? Uh, next one. It says angle scale. There it is, angle. That's the guy. Angle scale. Angle developed a, a tangible way to figure out where people are at. Because people are all over the map in their spiritual journey. They're different places in their spiritual journey. And some of them are at what we call, uh, and these are numbers not because people are less or not, but they, it's, they have no awareness of a supreme being. I, I haven't talked to many people who are not aware of a supreme being, but some people just, they've never thought about it, they don't think about any any supreme being at all. And then there are those, minus four, who have a, an awareness of a supreme being. Um, in other words, if you talk to them and say, do you believe in God? Yeah, I believe in God. Um, I ran into a Hindu one day when I was in college, and, and we were talking about things, and he, he was aware of a supreme being. Now, he thought there were many, many supreme beings, but, but he was aware that there was a supernatural thing going on in the universe somewhere. Aware of a supreme being, but he had no knowledge of the one true God, Okay. And some people are there. Um, they may not have any background in church and religion or whatever, but if most people, if you say, do you believe in God? They say, yeah, yeah, I believe in God. Okay, that's an awareness of the supreme being. But then minus three gets them to an awareness of the, and a positive attitude toward the gospel. This means that not only is the supreme being alive, but it means that, that he had a son named Jesus, and he sent Jesus to die for our sins, to restore that relationship, that we, we have a broken relationship between us and God. And so there's the implications of the gospel. Now, when you talk to people, you can ask questions, or they may ask questions, and you can pretty much figure out if they are aware of a supreme being or not, if they have a positive attitude toward the gospel. And this has nothing to do with, they may say, well, I, I don't like church. Well, this doesn't have anything to do with church. This has to do with, with God and Jesus, Okay. But do they have a positive awareness, awareness and a positive attitude toward the gospel? Once they know about the gospel, then minus two, decision to act. A decision to act. And everybody that I've ever known 
that was a pre-believer, not a believer yet, was somewhere along the scale. No awareness and awareness, whatever. And so our job in relationship as our mission to bring people to Christ is to find out. And this is relationship. It's, it's, it's not pressure. It's not anything else. It's loving relationship, just talking to people. And then there's minus one, repentance and faith in Jesus. At some point, people have to make a decision. Are they going to do something with this or not? And, and everybody I know has come along this line. All of us came along this line. And our job as a mission as making disciples is to discover where are they on the angle scale. And then when they give their life to Christ, they become a new creation. New creation. And then what happens after that? We have plus one incorporation into the body, which means helping them become part of a fellowship of some sort, conceptual and behavioral growth, solid relationship with God, and then reproducing Jesus' life in others. That is numbers and statements about making disciples, bringing people along that angle scale. And I wanted to just give you that idea so that when you talk to people, you can say, I wonder where they are on the angle scale. And just say, how can I help move them towards conversion and knowing Jesus? We send missionaries all over the world. Matt shared about his process with the Muslim guys. They believed in a God, not sure. And they came to the realization that Jesus was Lord. They gave their life to Jesus. They came down the angle scale and they found Jesus. That's making disciples. Same process in Albania as in Eau Claire. Same thing. People are all over the scale. Number two, disciple making has a beginning but no ending. Growth never ends until we die. Number three, discipleship requires risk and commitment. And that mainly is getting involved in people's lives. And four, discipleship takes time. Now, when I share about these things about making disciples, a lot of people say, I, I can't do that. I, I can't do that. Some of you are going, whoa, I don't, want, I don't want to do that. A lot of people say I can't do that. Well, because Jesus gave his last words, he said, I'm in charge of the universe. I want you to move out and obey me. His last words are, I, Jesus, will support you all the way. I, Jesus, will support you all the way. He said, surely I am with you always. Yeah, we can't do it by ourselves. There are two parts to this promise. Number one is the presence of God. When you're facing a huge challenge, you're experiencing a very difficult time in your life, who is it that you want by your side? Who do you want by your side? A person you can trust, someone you can talk to, who supports you. God doesn't say, here's the mission, good luck. I wish you the best. I hope you make it. <laughs> no. He says, here's the mission, get moving. He says, I'm with you all the way. I'm with you all the way. That's why God can take bipolar Christians, worshipers, doubters, and change the world. His presence, he says, I will be with you. The second promise is power, power of God. God has the power to change our lives. Now, I want to put up this water illustration. Is it on one slide? Okay, it's backwards. Just put it all up. There we go. Okay. 
Water at 80 degrees is great for a swimming pool. And I like swimming, and I swim for exercise. I like the 80 degrees. If it gets colder than that, I'm not happy, but 80 degrees. A hot tub is about 105 degrees. A hot latte is at 150 degrees. Extra hot latte is about 180 degrees. At 212 degrees, it's the boiling point, and it produces steam, which equals power. At 212 degrees, water turns into steam. It's transformed. Therefore, it is power. That's what God does to us. He heats us up by his power, and we're transformed, and it's his working through us. It's not something we do. We allow our, our, our instrument, our bodies, our souls, everything to be used by him. His power pours through us, transforms us, and does the work. It's his power. And we need to be transformed by the power of God to make a difference. If we're going to carry out this mission... It's the Holy Spirit's power. It's God's power in us that does this. When we say, I can't do it, good. I can't do it. You can't do it. God does it through us. We're just saying, God, I'm available. Jesus' promise is that I will empower you. Acts 1.8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Jesus' last words. I, Jesus, am in charge of the universe. Move out. You're on a mission. I, Jesus, will support you all the way on mission. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus entrusted to us a mission. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to empower us Lord, we're sending support and we're supporting missions overseas. And I pray that we would return in some ways back to the local where we are to partake in the mission that Jesus has given us here. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Let's stand, shall we?